A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. To Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, but this is not just another episode. We're launching a new series on great American Jewish cities. And this first uh, episode in this series about Farakaway has been generously sponsored in honor of the builders of Torah in Farakaway, Rabbi Yaakov Bender. And Rabbi Yechiel Perz continued health and is sponsored by a Talmud of theirs. So we are launching this new series. The goal of this series is to, um, first of all, get a little bit across the, uh, across the golden plain of the United States of America and see where the Jewish communities sprouted during the early years and the later years um, to gain also a little bit of context and appreciation of where things came from to uh, to understand where they are now and, and really uh, how things developed over time. And it should be an interesting and exciting and fun story. And we'll get a little bit of different angles by seeing the different places. So if you want to have any patriotic pride for your city and have an episode about the Jewish history of the community there, so contact me about a sponsorship of that episode. So like I said, we're going to start off with Farakoe. Now Farakoe, by the way, I mean not the five towns in Long Island. I mean Farakoe. Uh, there are those who make the transition from Farakoe to the five towns. Uh, I'm thinking uh, many people. One of my dear friends, Yaakov Weber, a listener of Jewish History Soundbites. So you know, he had humble beginnings in Farakoe and then then developed and uh, moved on into uh, a uh, the area of the five towns. So that's already a different story. That's the that's the five towns. Maybe we'll do that as a separate episode. Um, but now we're going to focus on Farago. And I want to also say a special thank you to all those who assisted me with the research, with stories. A lot of people shared it. A lot of it, what I'm going to say is not my own original research, but actually... Um, other people uh, were able to assist, and that's the nature of things when it's different cities. Um, so Farakway, essentially it's part of New York City, of Queens, um, but it's kind of on the border. It's 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 almost like Long Island, like uh, other uh, edge, you know, edge edge of New York City, edge of Queens neighborhoods like Bell Harbor, which is right there, 
Um, they're they're on the fringe. Are they more part of New York City or they're more part of Long Island? That's part of the excitement of that area. It was a resort area back in the day because it was the edge of New York City. It was out of the thick of Manhattan. Some of the great old American wealthy families like the Vanderbilts on Fifth Avenue and other famous families like that would go out to vacation in the Farakaway area. There was resort hotels. I'm talking about the 19th century, obviously, with Cornelius Vanderbilt and the Railroad Empire and the late 1800s. Great American writers like William Wadsworth Longfellow and others would, <coughs> excuse me, vacation there. And it had a reputation as a vacation and resort area on the water. It became officially part of New York City in 1898, which is around the same time that Brooklyn um, became part of, uh, as a borough of New York City. It was a time when, when New York City defined its borders and Queens became a borough and and Brooklyn, and that's the history of New York City, which is also quite interesting, but that's for another time. Um, Jews come eventually because, originally because it's a vacation. Uh, and then in the post-war era, it, Jews came in much larger droves it, during the larger suburban so-called white flight from New York City to the suburbs, to Westchester, to Long Island, to New Jersey, which is a you know great phenomenon and fascinating story of the 1950s, which also uh, we can touch on here, but is a really also a topic uh, of American Jewish history in general. Um, the way we can break it down is either chronologically, the pre-war era, the story of the Jewish community in the pre-war, and then to the second stage of the post-war, and then to the third stage, the large growth of the community from the 1970s and on. Or we could examine it from the different facets of the story of of a place like Farakaway, the personalities on one hand, the institutions, the infrastructure that's built, or events that took place, or a combination of both, which is probably what we'll do. It's interesting, I quite a few years ago, I um, was reading a review that uh, Professor Schneer Lyman um, wrote of the new edition, I think it was even already the digital edition, of the Encyclopedia Judaica, which was a monumental project. And I still uh, have a, I'm not that old, but uh, I guess I guess I'm in the business. So it's like that. I have the, a print edition of the Encyclopedia Judaica from the 1980s. But um, I think when it was the new edition, when it was digitized, so Professor Lyman wrote a review and he, he wrote all the positive things about it. And as the nature of reviews, he also had some critical points. And one of the things that stuck out with me is that he is that he wrote that they did not have a profile, an entry rather, on Farakaway of great Jewish communities around the world. And as an example, I think he had a few examples there, but one of the prime examples that he had, probably because that's his town of origin, was um, was that Farakway said it's a prominent Jewish town? How come it doesn't merit an entry into the Encyclopedia Judaica? So I hope this episode does a little justice to this uh, great and uh, noble Jewish community. There are many many popular kosher resorts in the Rockaways um, in the pre-war era already. A lot of the conventions of the early Orthodox Jewish organizations like the Orthodox Union, the OU, the Agudas or Abonim used to do an annual convention out in, in the Rockaways. That was their 
favored location, uh, Mayor Barilan, who I discussed in an earlier episode a couple of weeks ago. He writes of how he would spend time at the popular Seagirt Hotel on Beach 14th Street. And uh, later on, it was sold to a Mr. Hirsch, who um, he he had a kosher hotel there. And then he hosted many G'dayli Yisrael in his kosher hotel. And uh, interestingly enough, this Mr. Hirsch's son married one of those G'dayli Yisrael who would stay at the hotel's daughter. And that G'dayli Yisrael was Ramadchei Shulman, who was the Rashiva in Slabatka. And, uh, and his son-in-law is today the Rashiva of Slabatka in Brak, or Maisha Hill Hirsch. So there you have a little bit of uh, Farakaway history there. There were other popular kosher hotels like the in 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 hosted all kinds of events when the uh chief rabbi of Israel, Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Herzog, came to the United States in nineteen fifty. So a reception was hosted for him at one of the popular Farakaway hotels as well. Interestingly enough, even earlier, if we go back to the nineteen twenties and Rav Cook, I mentioned Rav Herzog's Rav Cook's uh, famous uh, visit to the United States in uh, 1924, along with the Kovner Rav, the Dvar of Rum, Ravam Kana Shapiro. So both of them spent time in Farakaway at these hotels. In fact, uh, Rav Cook was a guest at the uh, at a at a Orthodox physician, Doctor Friedman, and um, Doctor Friedman's son relates a story about his father that Rav Cook was visiting uh, the Friedman's summer home in, in Farakaway, and someone came and interrupted their conversation and said, Dr. Friedman, I need you. My daughter's uh, sick, and you're the only hope. And Rav Cook said, maybe you should daven. That would also help, not just going to the doctor. It was a Jewish fellow. And the guy said, I, I can't daven. I don't feel comfortable davening because I don't observe Shabbos. Mechal Shabbos. So Rav Kook said, if you want the child to live, then maybe you should commit yourself to keeping Shabbos. So the guy did, and the child survived. So there you have a Moifis from the Litvisha Rav, Rav Kook in, uh, in uh, keeping the child alive. Rav Kook also, Rav Kook also attended a, a rabbinical conference in uh, Farakaway. The Dvar of Rum spent the Shabbos in Farakaway that year. It was a destination of uh, of the people who who came to America at the time, like I said, as a resort area. If we move along to the post-war, so one of the first uh, Jewish day schools in the Queens, Long Island area, um, it's founded in the pre-war, it becomes famous in the post-war. Um, it was later known as Hailei, uh, Hebrew Institute of Long Island. And um, if we add in a personal element to this episode, so my my mother grew up in Farakoy. My grandparents lived in Farakoy, so I grew up always going to Farakoy. It's part of part of uh, you know everything I uh, you know grew up with. And my mother went to Highline. My uncles went to Highline. That was that was that, that was the school then. That was the only school um, during those days. So it's founded already in the 1930s, and my, my mother obviously didn't go then, but um, but um, it was the Ramatcha um, Shachatovis, who was the son of Rav Sheftel Kramer, who was married to one of the Frank daughters, who I also discussed in another episode um, from the 
So he 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 founds what comes to be known as Highlight. Um and uh interestingly the 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 Highlight building eventually was in a place where it had originally been a Jewish orphanage. And I mentioned also in the, just the last episode I paid a tribute to um Marvin Schick, who had just passed away. So he described uh, when he would discuss his childhood, his father died at a very young age and his mother was struggling to make a living. She moved to Brooklyn, opened a bakery from her kitchen. So he was actually in this Jewish orphanage in Farakaway, which eventually was Highlight's building for many years. And later on was, was is it today, till today is Darchet Yeshiva Darcheter, the next stage of Torah education in Farakaway. Yeshiva's Darche Torah is now on that uh, building, that campus also. Uh, Hailei was the mainstay of Jewish education for decades in Farakway in that area. Um, that well, I mentioned earlier, Moshe Hill Hirsch was in Hailei. Uh, Schneer Lyman, who I mentioned earlier, went to Hailei. My mother went to Hailei. My uncles went to Hailei. Um, the famous uh, uh, Holocaust historian who fights Holocaust denial Dr. Deborah Lipstadt went to Highlight. And interestingly enough, the Panavizhirov, who used to visit Farakway all the time, also somewhat lived there for a period of time from his always being on fundraising missions. So he, uh, he was in the United States more than he was in Israel. And Rebbe Kahaneman, who went to Highlight, believe it or not, who was later the president of Panavish, um, they sort of lived in Farakway for a nice uh, period of his life. My my uncle remembers uh, the famous, later to be famous, Morris Talansky, who took down the Ehud Olmert government, people who enjoy scandals in Israeli politics, and remember the Moshe Talansky scandal, you know, bribery with Olmert and a whole a whole geschäft. So Talansky uh, lived in Farakway, and he actually taught at High Life for a period of time. Uh, in 1978, High Life merged with another school, and till today is known as Hafter. If we move on to another famous Farakway institution, uh, not institution, shul, is the White Shul. Now, the White Shul is almost a hundred years, almost a century old. It was founded in 1922. And one of the famous uh, early rabbis was a Litvisher Rav named Reb Shimshin Zelig Fortman. And he's today he's more famous for the sons-in-law he had. Um, one of his sons-in-law was the president of Agudas Yisrael, Ramesh Sharer, And another son-in-law was Reb David Hollander. David Hollander was a famous uh, uh, rabbi and uh, longest-lasting uh, pulpit rabbi in the United States and a big activist for Soviet Jewry, among his many, many other accomplishments. So he had two famous sons-in-law, but he himself was quite an impressive individual. He grew up in Strubin, in today Belarus, and he was childhood friends with someone named Ramesha Feinstein, who's the son, who was the son of the rabbi of Strubin at the time. And then he goes on, this Rebzelg Fortman goes on to learn in Slutsk by Rizal Zalmeltzer, and his chavrusa in Slutsk was Rav Shach, Rav Lezer Menachem Shach. In fact, Ramesha Sher, who's the president of Agudas Yisrael later on, so you'd think that that would be enough of a prestige and in a position of importance he would say that when he would come to Israel to meet with Rav Shach, Rav Shach said, Ah, oh, the Adim of Rav Zelig Fortman, the son-in-law of Rav Zelig Fortman. And that was his claim to fame, and not that he was the president of Agudas Yisrael. Now, interestingly, the Rav Zelig was a Kayan. And in those days, 
and one of the main mainstays of the livelihood of rabbis was um, unveiling of tombstones and of the funerals, anything that involved death. Kind of like me as a tour guide, um, just not the death itself, I just tour in the cemeteries, but there is a similarity. I guess that's the only similarity I have to a rabbi, um, at least of those days. But he was a kayan, so he couldn't do unveilings and he couldn't do funerals. And he used to say in Yiddish that he's a rabbi unkenzener and unkenbener. He has no... Uh, saying uh, like uh, pebbles, stones, like a tombstone, and which is saying and 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 unconbainer, he doesn't have bones either. So he he lost out on that major source of income. In fact, one time he was standing outside uh, of the chapel with a levaya going on, a funeral going on of one of his congregants, and another rabbi was going in and saw he was standing outside because he was a kain. He said, "I'm going in." and I might have to deliver a eulogy, can you give me an idea to say over? So Fortman, he tells him, why don't you say this idea, this sounds nice, this Dvartaira, this connection to the, to, the, uh, to the man who passed away. And the rabbi goes in, and he uh, says that husband that, uh, that Reb Zelig had just told him. And as the funeral comes out, the, the uh, family of the deceased sees Reb Zelig outside and realizing that he's a kind that he couldn't come inside. So they ask him, can you say a few words in honor of the deceased outside over here? So he goes on ahead and says what he had just told this other guy. Now this other rabbi had not credited him inside and now he was exposed as someone, uh, this other rabbi was exposed as having taken uh, Reb Zelig's hesped without giving him any credit. So that was um, an interesting. Reb gave all the speeches that he did in the White Shul in Yiddish, um, being that he was an old school Litvisharov. But he was a wise man and he had an understanding of the new generation. And he tried to teach himself English because he wanted to relate to the younger generation. He actually paid a layman, a balabas, in the community in Farakaway. He paid him $5 an hour, which was quite a sum for those days in the 1940s. And to listen to him read the New York Times, Reb Zelig would read the New York Times to this fellow, and he would pay him $5 an hour to correct him, uh, his pronunciation, his meaning of the words, so that he would be able to learn English. Um, when the you know big, great rabbis would come to Farakwe, very often they would either visit Reb Zelig, or they would actually stay at his house, the Panavizharov, um, would stay often by his house, and this was Rabbi Shishera's exposure to the Panavizharov when he would go spend Shabbos with his father-in-law, and sometimes the Panavizharov would be there, and that would enable the Panavizharov, who was a leader like no one else, to influence this young future leader, uh, Rabbi Shishera. Another twist to the Litvish Yeshiva world in Farakoway was the Mir Yeshiva was in Farakoway for a period of time, when Rav Ram Kalmanovich successfully brings the Mir from Shanghai over from uh, from China, like about oh, close to two years after the war is ending, they were still languishing there in China, and Rav Kalmanovich successfully was able to get them visas and citizenship and bring them to America. So their first stop was Farakoa, and their first stop was San Francisco. When they made the train over to the East Coast, they he put them up in Farakoa, and the yeshiva was actually there functioning for uh, exactly how long, half a year, a year, but they were there for a period of time, and um, and there, I, I saw Rav Nachum 
Partsovich, who was the future Mirish Yeshiva, who was a Bachar in the Yeshiva at the time, he writes a letter to his uncle in Israel and describing the Mir Yeshiva in Farakway and how it is in the summer, it's a vacation area. In fact, one of the vacationers at that time was the Visker Ilui, Rabbi Yaakov Safsal, from, and he lived on the Lower East Side, but he would come and spend the, his, the summer vacation in Farakway and Rab Nachum would go speak to him in learning. And just to tell you what a type of guy Rab Nachum was, the Visker Ilui, who was a clear genius, and, uh, and he was impressed with the young Rab Nachum, and that attested to his, uh, his future, because a lot of the mirrors would go speak to, uh, the Visker Ilui in learning, and he was very impressed with Rab Nachum. Now, in general, there's a boom in the Jewish population in Farakaway during the post-war era. Um, like I said, the so-called white flight to the suburbs, which is pervasive to all areas of New York City and all populations, um, so it affects the Jews also. And it was during that time, in fact, that my grandparents left Brownsville, and a lot of Brooklyn neighborhoods emptied out of their Jews during the 1950s and 60s. So my grandparents were just among the many, and they're reflective of the occurrence of the time. In the 1950s, they picked up from Brownsville, and he left his printing shop behind, and he opened the new one in Farakway, and they leave the old Jewish neighborhoods of Brooklyn, especially a place like as historic as Brownsville, and they moved to Farakway in Long Island, and that's why my mother and her brothers grew up in Farakway just at that time, like like was happening. So there's a big... Uh, big boom in the Jewish population um, from from it's considered a suburb. So here we move on to the next stage of the building, the infrastructure of the Orthodox Jewish community in Farakway. And the man who stands at the center of that is the next rabbi of the White Shul after Abzalik Fortman dies. And his name, the legendary rabbi, Rabbi Ralph Pelkovitz. And Rabbi Pelkovitz is father, Ephraim Pelkovitz, was a student of Slabotka back in Europe. And Ephraim was a Talmud of Slabotka. He moves to the United States and and um, actually also lived in Eretz Yisrael for a while, which was incredibly rare for an American family or even a Litvish American family to move to Eretz Yisrael. So Ralph Pelkovitz studied for a time in the prep yeshiva for the Chevron yeshiva, was called Tiferes Tzvi in Yerushalayim, and even though he grew up in America, but he learned for several years in Tiferes Tzvi in Yerushalayim, which was a preparatory yeshiva for the Hebron. And But by the time he was ready for Hebron, they moved back to New York, where he studied in Tervedas. The young Ralph Pelkovitz is a student of Rabbi Shleim Haiman, of Rabbi Shraga Feivel Mendelovich. He eventually goes out into the rabbinate, and he becomes rabbis in a bunch of different places. He's an educator, he's a rabbi, a young, dynamic leader, and then he arrives in the White Shul in 1951, and probably more than, I guess this is like a subjective statement, but probably more than any other individual, he influences the growth um, of, and leaves his, his imprint on, on the Jewish community of Farakwa. He essentially built it. Um, he's the rabbi of the White Shul for close to 50 years, half a century. And then he's the rabbi emeritus. He lived a nice long life till the age of about 97. And he's involved in every facet of of not not just influencing, but actually building it from scratch. He builds the mikvah. He's involved in the schools and education. 
He initiates all kinds of shiurim and activities, um, youth activities, women activities, together with his wife, his rebetzin, um, all kinds of shiurim for every different def- demographic in the Jewish community. Um, he built the kashris uh, of of um, of every everything that was public kashris in Farakoy, together with another Farakoy legend of Emmanuel Rackman. He he builds up the kashris with him, and he starts the Hever Kadisha. Rabbi Pelkovitz started the Hever Kadisha in Farakoy. Um, literally, all the infrastructure of a community, and that's why. You can't limit him to just being the rabbi in the white shul, but he was kind of the rabbi of the whole neighborhood, of the town, of what we would say a shtetl at that time, and he builds it up as as he's talking. He's, he's taking a kind of a diverse population on the youngish side, but uh, moving, uh, you know, not just natural growth. They're growing in great leaps and bounds. They're moving out from New York City, from Brooklyn. And they're coming here, and he builds up the community as it comes along. Um, in 1964, there's a new building for the White Shul, where they currently uh, are till today. Rabbi Yankov Kamenetsky came and actually spoke by the dedication ceremony for the new shul. And like I mentioned, um, another Farakway rabbi at the time um, was Rabbi Emanuel Rackman. Uh, he was originally a chaplain in the Air Force in the European theater of World War II. And following the war, he was court-martialed uh, because he was opposed to the the uh, death sentence of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, which is also a fascinating story that we'll have to get to sometime, who were convicted as spies, um, Soviet spies, in the post-war Red Scare McCarthy era. And he won the court-martial, and he retired from the army as a lieutenant colonel. But he was also a rabbi, and he becomes the rabbi of Shari Tefillah, which in those days was in Farakoway. He later moved on to become the rabbi in the Fifth Avenue Synagogue in uh, in Manhattan. He was later the chancellor at Bar Ilan University in Israel. He was one of the leading thinkers of modern orthodoxy. Um, he was one of the leading fighters for the rights of Soviet Jews. He visited the Soviet Union on several occasions. He was the president of the RCA, one of the leading uh, lights of uh, modern orthodoxy, and really developed a lot of a lot of the theory and um, in the uh, in the modern Orthodox world. Um, enough about rabbis, though. We'll take a you know on the, on the other side of the spectrum. There were a group of fellows who start the first kosher takeout, and they're 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 essentially Brooklyn-based. Famous Lieutenant Birnbaum, Meyer Birnbaum, a few a couple of the Stern brothers. And Rabbi Rucham Levavitz of the Meshgiach, his son, Rabbi Meisha Leib Levavitz, who was a shaykhit, but was a partner in the business, they start the Mazon uh, company, which was the first kosher, heimish uh, food takeout, barbecued chickens and chopped liver and all those type of things. And they were based in the Rockaways. That was where they were. It was a far off location, out of the way. In fact, Meyer Birnbaum said he didn't want to join the business originally because the location was so lousy, but it was a developing area, and they sold it to all the Brooklyn mainstream stores. So that the founding of kosher Heimish food, which we can't imagine a Jewish world today could exist without it, and everything that comes from it, eventually Meal Martin, today every supermarket has a whole takeout section, and, and it all starts from there. So that also has its origins in Farakoy. I mentioned that the Panavizhirov, his main base in America, was there. 
also at this time. So it's really an active area, and that brings us to the third stage of Farakoy's development in the 1960s and 70s. There's three major developments that are tied to both institutions and people. The first one is Reb Nachman Bowman and is taking the position of the young Israel uh, and founding the Yeshiva Farakoy. The second one is Reb Echil Per, who Yibadal Chaim, of all the great personalities that we're mentioning here in this episode, May he live and be well. He's one. He's the only one who's still alive. He's from the founders and one of the great builders of Torah and Jewish life in Farakway, and he's still with us. And the uh, third one who who would rounds up those three was Reb Shlomo Freifeld and Shari Yashuv. So just a little bit to touch on each one of those three. There's really so much to say, but just to just to, to round it out, Reb Nachum Bullman, was the rabbi of the young Israel, and one of the few people um, who I had the privilege to know personally. Uh, like I said, my parent, my mother's a Farakway family, my grandparents were close to the Rabbi Bullman, and I got to know him in his old age when he lived in Israel and had some fascinating conversations with him. He was a brilliant man. He actually loved history. He was, he, you know, he was a bit of a history buff. He, he said he had a lot to write about history and never got the chance. He wrote a lot of Rabbi Leo Kitov's uh, Sfarim and translated it to English, but he never wrote his uh, history books that he wanted. He had come from a Gerer uh, Hasidisha family, also an Alexander family, which is quite rare. And and he also studied in YU. So he had a nice combination to himself. He was very involved, heavily involved with Torah Messiah and Jewish education. He was one of the founders of the Jewish Observer, which for many years was the magazine and the voice of a good Israel in America. Amazing personality, leadership, um, he uh, he was a rabbi in Virginia. Later on in his years, he lived in 1975. He moved to Israel. He had in he he uh, he wanted to solve the issue of of Americans moving to Israel. That was a a topic that uh, remained at uh, at, the, at his top priority till the end of his life of helping families like that of sometimes discouraging them from them from moving because of the cultural differences, the mentality differences. He was a mashgiach and arsameach for many years. But I want to focus for a second on his uh, in his uh, Farakaway stint. He um, he was the rabbi in the young Israel, and he was very active in 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 uh, communal life of Farakaway. But he also very understanding person, very um, very firm. I remember him being very stern in a certain way, very powerful, very forceful in a certain way. He would correct people. He wouldn't be shy. I remember conversations that I had with him. And and um, and I was witness to also, but on the other hand, he was very understanding and very um, very open to uh, to different types of people who came to him. I remember speaking to um, a person who um, is not far from traditional Jewish life. We'll call it like that. And but he had grown up in the Farakway area, and he related to me that the only rabbi he ever respected in his life was Reb Nachman Bowman, interestingly enough. And he also was one of the founders of Yeshiva Farakway, together with Rabbi Per. The beginning of Yeshiva Farakway in 1969, I believe, um, was the new era of Jewish of Torah education of Farakway. First major yeshiva. And uh, Rabbi Per and Reb Nachman Bowman, they changed the face of Farakway forever with having a real yeshiva there, Yeshiva High School, and then later Rabbi Smedrish, um, Chaim Berlin moves out of Brownsville during that time when the Brownsville Jewish neighborhood is falling apart, 
and when the neighborhood changed, and they come to Farakwe for a period of time before moving back to Brooklyn to Flappish to their current location. And it was during this time, during this whole transition to leaving Brownsville, Farakwe, back to Brooklyn, that Rav Hutner, Rav Hutner was able to wrest control of the yeshiva away from the board and make it essentially his yeshiva. But it was also during this time when he left back to Brooklyn that his prize Talmud, Rav Schleimer Freifeld, who was a Rebbe in Chaim Berlin at the time, he requested permission from Rav Kutner to stay behind in Farakka with some of the guys and form the nucleus of his new yeshiva, which was his vision of what his yeshiva was to be, which would become Shar Yashif. How interesting, the catalyst for the founding of that yeshiva wasn't just Rav Shlomo Freifeld's vision, but was actually one of the Farakwe uh, locals, a fellow, fascinating fellow who also I uh, knew about through his, his kids and, and his family, um, Joe Petersile, who was a Holocaust survivor and a real, real Galicianer. He was quite a personality. He was a bit of a clown also. Um, and he, this is during the time of the Vietnam War and the real growth of the American yeshiva movement. And although great people like Rav Shaga Feivel and Rabaran Cutler and others laid the seeds of the American yeshiva world, but they're not the ones who caused its growth. What caused its growth was the draft during the Vietnam War, which was not a popular war. And uh, parents who, at that till that time, most parents encouraged their children to either join the workforce or go to college once they graduate high school. But now with the draft looming, they encouraged them to stay in yeshiva because then they would get a divinity school deferment and then yeshivas boomed across the United States, especially in the New York area. Enrollment went up and through the roof. So Joe Petersile actually was the one who convinced Rav Shlomo Freifeld to open the yeshiva. He was the first president, he formed the first board, and it, because he needed a place for his son uh, to go to yeshiva so he shouldn't be drafted into Vietnam. And that's how uh, it comes to be. And Rav Freifeld actually was very involved, and his wife, Rebison Freifeld, was very involved in the Farakwe Jewish community at large, and he didn't limit himself, he actually... It was uh, instrumental in building the community and building it around Shar Yashiv. Um, there's a cute story that I heard recently. Uh, country Yassi, Yassi Taiv, who was a student of Rabbi Freifeld, he related about how he was driving Rabbi Freifeld to also recent uh, passing, Shleim of Beagleisen, of the Beagleisen's bookstore. So Rabbi Freifeld used to buy books there. Um, and uh, he would... He would drive him. He drove him in a in his old beat-up Chevy. He's going down Rockaway Turnpike, and a cop pulls him over with the Pryfield in the car. So Country Ussie, uh says, what's, the, what's up, officer? This, this car cannot possibly be speeding because it's incapable of speeding. So the cop says, no, you're getting a ticket for a smoking vehicle. So, and he shows him, you know, that this this old beat-up Chevy's letting out quite a bit of smoke. So, so Yassi Taif says to the officer, said, this car is old enough to smoke. So Rav Shlomo Freifel, who's sitting next to him, bursts out laughing. He thought that was the funniest thing in the world. And he kept on laughing the entire way to this farm store. And every time that he saw him afterwards and he was talking to someone, or Freifel would turn to whoever he was talking to and say, do you know what this fellow said to a cop? Not only that, but even when Country Yossi came to Menachem Mavler, Rav Shlomo Freifel, when his wife died, so he came to, to pay him a shiva call, 
and uh, Rav Shlomo Freifeld sees him, and he turns to Rav Aaron Shechter, the Rashiva Chaim Berlin, and he says, you know what this Bacher said to a cop once when I was driving with him? So that story remained part of Farakway lore. And um, next to Farakway you have Bell Harbor, which is also a great Jewish story, a whole Jewish neighborhood. That's a real resort town. The Satmarov himself uh, spent quite a bit of time uh, recovering from his stroke in uh, in Bell Harbor. And there's definitely lots more to say about this great Farakway Jewish community. Perhaps we'll have the opportunity to have uh, more on this and other topics. And of course, Jewish American cities across the landscape. And uh, we hope that this will be an exciting and great series to explore American Jewish life uh, across the country. So this was Yehudi Gabriel with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources. And of course, tours and trips to places of interest of Jewish history. And um, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.